Amen. Amen. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, Church, so good to be with you all this afternoon uh, for two more weeks. And as you all know, uh, and if you've seen my email too, with the whole move to Ray, uh, we it's kind of like an all-hands-on-deck kind of moment. Uh, there's a lot of uh, getting to the school and getting the contract done was one thing, and praise be to God for that. But now the moving part um, will keep me up at night sometimes to figure out all those details. And so I uh, would love just, you know, first of all, your prayers, but also uh, participation and, and ways that you can help and connect and uh, just help be uh, getting that space ready and prepared in this season. It's not going to be, you know, a perfect start, but it's going to be a growing process. And so uh, grateful for that. I think there's a lot of potential in that space. And um, God has given us much favor, even getting that space. You know, getting a CPS space is not an easy thing in Chicago. It's not just a, you know, simple. It's a long process. And so God has been truly faithful and um, really blessed us with that. And also thank you, Kayla and Jer, for being here too as well. Um, love what you all are doing. And um, yeah, please do talk with them after our gathering if you have any questions or want to get more connected with uh, Young Life and their ministry. We're going to continue in 1 Corinthians, and um, buckle up as we, as we go through. 1 Corinthians, if you all know, uh, is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And uh, if you remember, this church in the city of Corinth was very much kind of, of like a city like Chicago. Corinth was very diverse. It was a commerce center. It was global, had many viewpoints and religions, and also a lot of people who did not follow Jesus. And so when Paul writes this letter, he is sending this letter to a young urban church, kind of like us, who has, uh, maybe not like us entirely, but kind of like us in a ways of uh, context, but this church has gone wayward. They have kind of gone a little bit outside the ways that Jesus has called them to live. And for Paul, he writes this because um, he wants to remind them that Christ has rescued them from their wicked ways in order for them to live life free from sin with great joy and peace in God. But they weren't doing that. They weren't doing that. And so as we get to chapter 5 and 6 and 7, you'll see some of these specific sins that Paul begins to call out. And so let me read uh, this text for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, And then I'm going to dive right in, and I'm going to really go verse by verse so we can understand what Paul is saying to the church, but how it also applies to us um, 2,000 years later, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm reading from the ESV. It reads, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man that has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write to you, uh, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral of this world, of the greedy and swindlers, of idolaters, since that you, since then you would not need to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you, God, that your word is true and good and profitable for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. But, God, we also know that your word um, has some uh, sometimes hard words for us to hear. And so, God, as you um, have us in 1 Corinthians 5 as a church, God, we do not want to um, just preach uh, or share the words that are encouraging and loving and great. All your word is, God, but we also know that your word has um, truth in it. And so I pray that we would hear the truth in much grace and love. Um, give me grace and kindness to preach in your way. May it be your words and not mine. Uh, and I pray, oh God, that it would produce a good fruit in all of us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start with a question here, all right? What do you love? What do you love, all right? For me, I love coffee, okay? I love coffee. Now, as fall comes, as the, you know, today's kind of an exception, but when the chilly kind of weather comes, you know, that like hot coffee, like it's a little sweet, a little bitter, flavorful, it smells so good, it's the best part of my morning, okay? Uh, it also, you know, has caffeine, so it helps a lot, but it also can reduce heart disease. What's, what's not to love about coffee, okay? Now, for me, um, if you are close with me, you know because I love coffee, I am also very particular about how I like my coffee. For starters, you have to have quality beans. Uh, you can't have, I'm sorry if this offends some of you, you can't have Folgers or Dunkin's, you know, maybe even, not even Starbucks. You need quality beans from a quality roaster, and it has to be recently roasted, not too old. Um, you have to also weigh the exact amount of beans to the correct ratio of water you are going to use or it's going to mess up the process. You have to grind whole beans, none of that pre-grinded stuff. You have to also have the right coarseness. You have to use filtered water boiled to just under boiling temperature and using the right filter in the right circular motion, you will get the perfect cup of coffee. Not too long and not too short. But if you mess up any of those steps, any of those steps, you are going to get an imperfect cup of coffee, which for me is a travesty to do. Now, I bet some of you, as I just kind of walk through how I make my coffee, you're probably looking at me saying, like, no, you're crazy, okay? Like, no one does that. Not, a lot of people do, actually. Um, but <laughs> not, not many people do that. But for me, I'm like, my thinking is, why wouldn't you not spend this time to experience the full breadth and depth that this gift from God has been given to us. Why would you not do this? For me, that's, 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 that's the reality. But um, for some of you, you might not love coffee as much as I do. Maybe you love something else. Perhaps some of you, you love food. So whatever food you eat, it has to be prepared to a particular precision and heat and whatever else that you need. Or perhaps some of you love like different gadgets you have, or your car, or some object, or some jewelry. Maybe some of you love your work, or your family, or your hobbies, or your health, whatever else. If you love that thing, you will do everything and anything to make sure that whatever it is you love 
is protected, it's done correctly, it's not tainted, even to the point that you have all this attention of detail where you might seem a little bit crazy about this one thing that you love. Why? Because you want to fully enjoy and appreciate this thing or this person or this hobby that you love. But then as we get to our text, and it's, pretty, it's, a, it's a pretty bold text and way that Paul is writing here, a similar question rises. Do we love the church the same way? Do we love God's church in that same way? Do we love the church where we will do anything to protect it, to keep it pure, and commit its ways so that the church can flourish and persevere and be a light that God has planned for it? And I ask this question because in chapter 5, Paul is addressing this man who is perpetually sinning here that needs to be disciplined and even cast out of this church community. In other words, the main theme of chapter 5 is this touchy subject called church discipline. Now, discipline has a lot of negative connotations, especially in our culture, because oftentimes discipline involves telling someone that they are doing some wrong or sinning or needs to be punished because it goes against a lot of the views that we value in our culture, which is individual freedom or tolerance or a you-do-you culture. But for Paul, because he loved the church so much, the body of believers that Jesus Christ died for and rescued, Paul would do anything to maintain the church's purity and holiness. So let's go back to the question that we've been asking throughout the series in 1 Corinthians. The question that we've been asking is, how does the church follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? And in chapter 5, my kind of thesis, if you want to put it this way, is we follow Jesus by addressing sin seriously in the church to protect it and also to restore others. Let me just give you the roadmap for today. Um, I have four kind of points here, and it kind of follows the sermon. The problem, the solution, the warning, and then the application. So let me just kind of go through this. It really works out well in this text. Number one, the problem. What is the problem here? Very obviously in verse one, Paul writes this. It is actually reported that there is, sexually, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The issue in the church of Corinth was this case of sexual immorality. Now that word there, you'll see it a lot. It's this Greek word that in, in, in Greek, it's, based, it's called, oh, it's, uh, the Greek word is porneia, uh, which you can, you know, that's the word porn or pornography comes from. It basically is any sexual behavior outside the boundaries of a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. So it involves adultery, prostitution, and, and really any sexual acts outside of a covenantal marriage. But something more atrocious is happening in this church right now. There is a man in the church that has his father's wife. Basically, a man was sleeping with his stepmother. And notice it says the word has, which is present tense. So this is an ongoing act going on in the church. It's a case of incest. Uh, it's, uh, it's a difficult case, but Paul needs to call it out. And he also adds this. He says that this is a kind not even tolerated among the pagans, so those who are outside the church. And if you remember now, 
Corinth was a highly sexualized culture. It was one where even a scholar wrote that sexual intercourse was just as natural, necessary, and justifiable as eating and drinking. Even the married man was permitted extramarital intercourse as he pleased as long as he did not violate a civil marriage. So even in a culture like Corinth, the act of incest was actually detestable. They didn't even accept it there. It was actually or possibly against the law in that city. Because for a son to sleep with his father's wife would have brought shame upon that father and also to the entire household. But what's ironic is that for Paul, he definitely, yes, calls out this wicked sin, but this sin is not the main reason of this chapter. The main reason of this chapter is kind of revealed in verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? He is basically calling out that the church has ignored this ongoing sin in the church, and they are actually proud that it is happening. The Corinthians thought that no matter what you did, because God forgives you and you're saved by his grace, you can do whatever you want. But Paul is saying that is totally wrong. He is saying you should not celebrate sin, but you should mourn sin whenever you see it or whenever it is done in your life. And so the ultimate problem Paul addresses here is not that there is an unrepentant sinner in the church, but that the church community has not taken sin seriously within their community, and they're allowing this person to continue to be in their fellowship and still sin without saying anything to him, even hurting their witness to a culture that detests what's going on in the church. Now, before I go on to the solution of this uh, chapter, I want to be clear here. When I say uh, someone committing sin, then does that mean that whenever someone commits sin in the church that they should be kicked out? That's not what I'm saying here, okay? Please, we would all be kicked out if that was the case. But what I'm saying here is that, first of all, sin is any word or act or thought that goes against God's ways. And none of us in this space has ever kept that perfectly. We have all missed the mark of God's standards. Thus, all of us struggle with sin. That's why for a Christ follower, our journey is of one of repentance. And if we look at 1 John 1, 9, it reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And for us who are struggling with sin, that is a promise that we have. But the problem in the Corinthian church was not that this person was struggling with sin, but that this person stopped caring about this sin and continued to do, do it. They were unrepentant. They did it without even any attempt to stop or ask for help or confess. And so there is a clear difference between struggling with sin and just giving into perpetual sin. And to be even more clear, Paul also is not just addre uh, addressing the sin of sexual immorality here, but if you go to verse 9 and verse 11, you'll see that Paul lists out other sins that the Corinthian church was most likely going through, like greed and idolatry and slander or drunkenness, which is like substance uh, abuse or addiction, or being a swindler, which is kind of this combination of stealing and cheating. Paul is not singling out sexual immorality here, though that is important to this chapter. 
He is singling out the issue that the church has let this sin fester and grow and perpetuate with no consequences within the church. That is the problem. So what's the solution? If you look at the end of verse 2, he makes it very clear. This is a hard truth to hear, but he says, Let him who has done this be removed among you. The solution is to have church discipline and effectively remove him from the church. Now, I bet some of you are asking, like, isn't that kind of harsh? Like, shouldn't you have grace and forgiveness and, like, welcome this person and, and, like, really try to, like, talk him out of this? But what's interesting is that um, if you look in verse 3 through 5, Paul is kind of paints the reason of this solution. First of all, you see in verse uh, 3 that Paul claims his right to have authority to judge sin inside the church. Inside, not outside, inside the church. As an apostle and leader, he has a right to call out sin. And if you look at verse 9 again, what's interesting is that 1 Corinthians is not the first letter he is writing to the Corinthian church. He has written a letter even before this one saying to cast this person out because of their sexual immorality. And so he is reminding them over and over again. And so this isn't the first time Paul is warning them. But because he is an apostle given the authority by Jesus Christ, he has authority to point out sin and to call it out, to protect the church. Second, in verse 4, what we see is that when the church assembles or gathers in the name and power of Jesus, that is significant here. This alludes to Matthew 18 to 20. You see it on the screen here. On Matthew 18, 20, many of us in the church, we know this verse. It says, for where two or three gather in my name, this is Jesus speaking, there I am with them. This is important. When we gather together as a church, even if it was just a few of us, like two or three of us, Jesus Christ promises that he is among us and with us. Jesus welcomed sinners. Yes, he very much welcomed sinners. But he welcomed the sinners who didn't claim to follow Jesus. They were just interested in Jesus. But what he did do was he rebuked often the Pharisees who said they were followers of God, but very much were not following Jesus his ways. And then in verse 5, what we see here is the solution to discipline, because the goal of discipline is always restoration. What we see in verse 5, Paul says to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, when you first read that, that's, that's like the harshest way you can do, deliver this man to Satan. But remember for Paul, when he uses that word flesh, Flesh is often another way for him to say the sinful nature in humanity. So what he is saying is, let this man be cast back out into the world to live out his sinful desires, and in due time, he will hopefully come back because he'll see how empty his sinful pursuits are. Now, since it's, you know, it's, it's pretty close to Christmas, well, according to like Target and Amazon and Costco, it's pretty much Christmas already now. So since it's Christmas, I figured, why not share a Christmas story? Now, many of us know this story, the Christmas Carol, right? The Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge, and he sees the ghost of Christmas past and present and future. And in the story, I'm not going to go through in detail here, but in the story, we know that these ghosts kind of present and help him see how selfish and wicked his ways are 
and how ultimately in the future it leads him to a gravestone that pretty much he dies lonely and in despair and all alone. And spoiler alert, because he sees kind of where his future is going, he comes back and he realizes, I need to change my ways. And so he repents and he becomes this generous and this kind man, realizing his selfish ways were empty and hopeless. And in a similar way, the hope of church discipline is that by seeing the emptiness in living a life of sin apart from the community of the church, the sinner will come back. And if you see at the end of verse 5, so that their spirit may be saved. Again, the goal of discipline is not punishment or exclusivity. It is always for restoration. Now, I have to be honest here. Um, church discipline or removing someone from church community uh, isn't that common today. It's, it's, it's just not. Uh, and the reality is because unlike the church of Corinth that was just one church in one city, um, we have many churches in one city. And at Park, we do have a process for church discipline. Just to you know, let you all know, we do have a process. Um, and it's, it's meant for members of the church. And we follow a Matthew, a Matthew 18 principle. And I'll just read it here, Matthew 18. Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you and you have won them over, and you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, basically saying they are no longer um, a brother or sister in Christ. So we practice that here. And that's happened um, in many iterations throughout Park Community Church in its history. Um, at Park Community Church Hyde Park, that has yet to happen yet, but I imagine um, it eventually will. Um, but there is an additional problem that I just want to mention in our culture and in our churches. You know, I was talking with Pastor Kenson, who has been a pastor at Park for about 11 years now, and, and he mentioned that in almost every church discipline situation, that the member would eventually leave the church before restoration could ever happen. They would just move and go to a different church or leave the church sadly altogether, never addressing the sin issue in their own lives, often saying and leaving with this word, you are wrong and I am right. And even for you now, as I say this, if, if I came up to you, just hypothetically, and confronted a perpetual sin that is obviously going on in your life, and I did it in the most caring and loving and compassionate manner, would you accept the word? Even for me, I have a hard time listening to my own discipline. Because, um, I don't know about you, uh, I, I feel like a good example of, of why we don't do this is, I'm not sure if any of you have been a part of a sports team before, or maybe any kind of team. It could be a work team, a, a party planning team, a, a school project team, or maybe even the math team. I don't know. I have no idea. But a team before, right? My most uh, kind of intense team experience was actually on a, a high school football team, um, where it's, it's amazing. When you're a team, everything you do is for one mission. Every practice, every film study, every meeting was for the team. We had jerseys, but we didn't have our names on the back. We had just the team name on the front. 
And whenever there was a weak link in the team, someone was slacking, someone was missing their assignment, someone was doing something wrong, a coach or even a teammate had every right to call that team member out. Sometimes resulting in extra conditioning, which means just more running for punishment. Why? Because they were hurting the team. And I tell you, because that teammate was so committed to the team and wanted to be on the team, they, they shaped up, they changed their ways, they ran those laps for the sake of the team. And the reason I believe we have such a hard time with this chapter and with the issue of church discipline or confronting sin is because we often value the I more than the team, right? Like the famous saying, like, there's no me and there's no me and team. Wait, there's no, wait, there is a me and team, but there's no I and team. That's what I'm saying, right? There's no I and team, okay? I, I, that's that's a really bad example. Sorry, don't, don't, don't listen to that one. Um, because I, I believe we, we desire um, our preferences. We, we, we want to live our lives the way we think is best. And you just have to accept me for who I am. And to a level that is correct, but we have to understand that if we're all broken and we're all blinded by some of the sins that we have, we all need each other to point them out. Don't you want to reflect the holiness, the beauty, and the love and truth of Christ in your life and in this church? You know, it's funny because even other communities or teams, they have boundaries too. Like, PETA or the Chicago Bears fan club or even your condo association, they have boundaries and expectations and a mission to fulfill, right? If you don't love animals or if you don't cheer for the bears when they're this bad or don't pay your condo dues, they'll call you out. They could even kick you out of that community. Why is it when the church calls people out, it is like we, we get afraid of it? And I think it's because we value the I more than the team. Now what happens then? What happens then if we just let sin fester? What happens if we just kind of do, say, you do you and you do you and I'll do myself? Like then what will we find, right? What happens? In verse 6 to 8, Paul gives the warning. In verse 6 to 8, Paul gives this example of yeast. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you're like an expert baker here. Maybe some of you are. Um, watching all 13 seasons of the greatest are the Great British Bake Off also does not count, but if you watch that, you probably know what yeast does, all right? Yeast is actually an active bacteria. Uh, it's like a mold, and it helps ferment items like dough or beer to be what it is. And just a little bit of yeast will change the composition of that product. And in the same way, Paul uses this example because in this church community, they would actually bake bread every day. So they would know the effect of yeast. If this sin enters the church community and is left unaddressed, this can change the entire composition of the church. And in James 1.15, it reminds us, sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's why Paul says, cut the mold so it won't infect the whole. Now, we know that small things, like, if you know, most of us know that small things can create major chaos. We, we know that a small ember, like in the middle of California, could cause a forest fire. We know that one tiny viral in our droplets could cause a pandemic. Like, that's just the reality of our lives that we live in. Something small can cause major destruction. 
but do you really believe that a little bit of sin in this church can cause its destruction too? Now, there are obvious examples. We've seen examples, sadly, um, in the news or on social media of prominent leaders in the church that haven't addressed their sins, um, really destroy churches, destroy relationships, even leaving many to question their faith. But what about the sins of the normal member who is continuing their sin? Does my continual sin of maybe greed or gossip or pride or addiction or selfishness or sexual sin or whatever else, does that hurt the church? And the answer is still yes. Not by necessarily offending your neighbor they're sitting next to. It can still happen, but mainly by offending the one who gave up his very body and blood as a sacrifice for the church to be a church. In verse 6 to 7, Paul uses this, Paul says to cleanse out the old leaven the, so that you may be a new lump, the unleavened. In other words, don't have yeast in you. And he gives this example of Jesus Christ being the Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. And so he's going all the way back to Exodus when Israel was God's people and they ate unleavened bread on the day when God protected them from the angel of death by having the blood of the Passover lamb painted on their doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over them and spare their lives. In the same way, Paul is saying, you, the church, you have been saved. You have been rescued from sin and death by the blood of Jesus who's been painted on two wooden beams on the cross, the one who knew no sin, knew sin to take on your sin so that you did not have to live in sin. So Paul is saying, don't let sin fester among you, for by doing that, you are offending and dishonoring the very Lord and Jesus you claim as Lord and Savior over your life. The Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, should mark your identity. Why would then you want sin to contaminate it and disgrace it and to lead to more sin in the church? But Christ died so that people would be a beacon of holiness. Paul's going back to holiness here. And in verse 8, he says, so that you could be the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There is a lot more theology just in those three verses in 6 to 8. I don't have time to go into that. But what you should see is that Paul warns them that any sin committed by non-leaders can damage the church. First, by offending Christ as Lord, but also we know that greed can hinder generosity, that pride can bring self-righteousness and not humility, that sexual immorality can bring shame and emptiness and not purity and wholeness, that jealousy and gossip can break relationships, that we know that sin, if left unaddressed, can break the church. So what's the application? Um, it kind of goes back to the beginning here. Verse 11 to 13. Let me just read it again. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, revival, uh, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Paul goes back again, very specific. Remove the person who is not repentant of his sins outside of the church. 
because the mission of the church, uh, this is where he's clarifying here. It's not that you are to not associate with any sinner. What he is saying is for those, if you notice here in that language, he says, for anyone who bears the name of brother or even sister, remove them. So it's someone in the church who claims to be a follower of Christ, who, who says they are, but in their lifestyle and their living and in their words are not. And he's saying for those outside the church, again, he's saying like, no, 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 no. You are still to engage with them. The mission of the church is to love and serve those who are outside the church, who, yes, may be in sin, but you are called to love them and serve them. That's the very vision that we have as a church, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ until there is no place left. We do that here in Hyde Park, surrounding neighborhoods. But this message that Paul is specifically addressing is for those who claim to be a brother or sister in Christ. And he gives this list of many of these sins. And what's interesting on this list is that if we go to the rest of 1 Corinthians, he actually addresses each one of those sins in different facets throughout the rest of the letter because these are the sins that the church of Corinth is struggling with right now. And he ends with this really harsh word, but truth, where he says, if they are like this and they are unrepentant and they still claim to be a brother or sister in Christ, to not even eat with them. And eating in that context was the most intimate way of fellowship for that church. And Paul's saying, don't even eat with them. You know, I, I think um, as I was just even thinking and praying and like even as some of the other pastors at Park were thinking about this, it's, it's a really tough word to eventually say that you could get to a point in a church where you would say, please leave the church. And again, I go back to what Paul is saying in the, the beginning. A question, again, I ask it again, is how does the church follow Jesus in the world that doesn't follow Jesus? We as a church must take sin seriously because what difference then are we from the world? What, what, why then did Jesus even have to die? But also, we do this because we take restoration seriously as well. We know that sin, if left unaddressed, can cause more destruction in our lives than we would like to believe. But sin can, like, as, as James said, it could lead to death. And it, doesn't, it happens in small ways. Um, and, and for kind of, my, kind of wrapping it up here, uh, my challenge for us and even for myself is that we not be ashamed of the sins that we are struggling with. That as a church, my prayer um, is that if we truly want to be a church that loves one another, that we would be willing to actually listen and care about the sins of others. Not to judge, not to condemn, not to say like, oh, why are you so messed up? No, but to seek restoration for that person. To see them thrive, not just survive. And the only way that we can do that is if we know, and not saying that you publicly say all the sins that you're struggling with right now, I'm not saying that, but in the context of community and relationships, in your missional communities, in friendships, to confess sin with one another so that God can use confession to lead towards transformation. And, you know, we recently just um, uh, kind of ushered and, and um, commissioned our deacons recently, 
Um, and, you know, you should see some note cards next to you. And um, we haven't done this regularly as a church, but if you ever need prayer, if you ever want prayer also done in confidence, uh, in, confid- in confidentiality with a deacon or a leader, I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to share sin, not because, again, to condemn or to judge or to point out wrong, but so that Christ could help us be more like him, so that we could be holy like he is, not in a judgmental way, church, and also not in a way where we judge out people outside the church. This is only done in the confines of community and of a family here. And again, I also will say, that maybe someone that you know close in the church is struggling with a sin, and you need to point that out. I do say, do it carefully, do it lovingly, do it kindly, but that also has a place in the church as well. Because if you love someone, you want them to be better. You want them to flourish. You want them to thrive. You don't want them to struggle. But you want them to be like Christ and to call them out in the way And it always comes back to what Christ has done for us. Christ did not need to come to earth on a cross to die and resurrect if sin wasn't a reality for each one of us. But sin is. And sin's never a fun topic to talk about in the church, but it is an important topic. And so my encouragement is whether it's through a note card, through a friend, through your mission or community leader, through maybe coming to Thomas or myself or to one of the deacons, Um, If there is a sin you are struggling that you want prayer for, let us know. If you need accountability, let us know. If you have questions, let us know. Let sin not hide in darkness, because in darkness it will always thrive. But let it come to the light. That is my prayer. Even for myself, I still struggle with sin. Um, I remember even like a few few months ago, I had to confess just my sin of pride to, to you all, or just my sin of just not trusting. And There's many things that I struggle with. No one is perfect, and we all need God's grace to do that. And so um, bow our heads, and let me just pray over you, um, and then I can, uh, and then Esther and, and Grace will pray, uh, will lead one song. Um, but let me just pray over us all and just kind of give a moment of prayer. Um, you know, I don't know what many of you are going through. Uh, I don't know uh, the struggles that are happening in your heart. I don't know the, the doubts or the disappointments or the frustrations that you feel right now, um, but I do know that God cares so much about each one of those. I don't know if you don't. I don't know if you feel like God doesn't care or not, but um, God deeply does. And, and Father God, I I pray in this moment. Um, as we talked about church discipline and about even like excommunicating someone from the church, God, we know that that's really not your that's not really your plan, God. That's not your hope, um, God. Your hope is for people to be restored and to find deeper satisfaction in the One who came to live, die, and resurrect in three days. And so, Father God, I pray that as um, we talk about a, a hard subject, God, I pray that you would please um, change our hearts. Um, that you would have mercy on us, that you would forgive us, that you would help us live a life that is reflecting the life of Christ, to to live a life of freedom, of of joy, of peace, of restoration, God, because, God, we know that you didn't come and die just for us to, to live and struggle with sin, but you came so that we could be free through the power of your Spirit. And so, Father God, help us, I pray. 
Help us to bring sin into light. Help us to confess sin. Help us to not be ashamed of sin, but to come to know that you are the only one that can forgive and redeem and heal the sin in our lives, God. And God, we thank you so much, God. In, in, honest, in all honesty, God, we thank you so much because, God, we can come fully broken and transparent before God who is perfect and holy. And God, we thank you that you have given us that hope. And so, Father God, whatever is happening in our hearts right now, what is churning in our hearts right now, I pray that that would not go um, forgotten and unnoticed as we leave this space, but that you would help us to process, um, to, to confess, and to even bring sins to other trusted brothers and sisters in Christ in this week ahead, God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.